quick recap for those of you who haven't been here yet. First two weeks of this uh, series on Jesus, we've hit, I, I, think, I don't know if I could preach any more important messages than I preached those last two weekends. I don't know if it's possible. Uh, because we hit the most important topic there is. What is Christianity all about? It's about a relationship with a real person, Jesus. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not a lifestyle. Sometimes uh, young people in particular, they think of Christianity as it's a radical lifestyle. Well, there, there might be radical lifestyle changes that come to your life, but Christianity isn't a lifestyle, not even a radical one. It's a relationship. Christianity is not a lifestyle. Christianity is not a set of rules. Christianity is not a set of doctrines. It's a relationship with a real person. Our whole life is about knowing, loving, obeying, and following him. And that's, that's what it is. And last week, again, if you weren't here last week, again, I would just highly recommend you go back and you listen to that because the rest of this series is coming out of those first two weeks. Those first two weeks are everything to this series. And last week we talked about how do you grow in love for Jesus? How do you grow in love for Jesus? Because there's no button on your heart where you can just turn on love for Jesus. So how do we grow in love for him? That's everything, okay? And so those first two weekends are the foundation and the context for the rest of this series because we're going to shift gears a little bit now. And for the rest of this series, we're going to talk a lot about doctrine. We're going to talk about doctrine, about who Jesus is. And I, but I don't want people to get, I don't want pe- you to divorce what we're going to do the rest of this series from what happened in the first two weeks. The first two weeks is everything. I don't, I, what I don't want to have happen is what happens in so many churches and, and schools and seminaries today where we turn Jesus into a, into, a, into a subject that's to be dissected. Jesus isn't a subject, he's a person. He's a person to be followed, he's a person to be loved, he's a person to be obeyed. Okay? Now, it's important what we believe about him, so it's important that we study the details of who he is. And so we are going to study doctrine, but it's doctrine not divorced from relationship. The first two messages I preached are everything for this series. It's about loving him, and then in order to love him and follow him better, we're going to study some doctrine. Who is he? So bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into this. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we come to you, uh, and we love you. And we want to know you more. We want to love you more. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in this message today. I pray that you would strengthen our convictions about who you are. I pray that you would give us a love for studying you. I pray that you would give us a love for knowing you. I pray that you would give us a love for walking with you in this series, Jesus, that we would not get tired of talking about you and studying you, that we would have a relationship with you. In your name we pray. Help me today. Help us to concentrate here today. Quicken our spirits. Bring that focus and that concentration in the spirit to just really come into your presence here this morning. Help me to say the words you want me to say in the spirit. You want me to say them in. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, I know the moment I say the word uh, doctrine, uh, lots of people inside, you kind of go, oh. And we sort of have this automatic response to that word because we think of it as sort of, uh, when we hear the word doctrine, we think of something, we think of topics that are boring and, and irrelevant to our everyday lives, right? really impractical. You know, they're little obscure points of theology that only, you know, theologians with PhDs care about. And that's how many Christians today feel about doctrine. In the church today here in North America, we Christians don't, we're not big on studying doctrine. 
What we, want, what we come to church to hear is we want to hear practical tips for life, right? Practical tips. Oh, Chris, I am, I am drowning in my marriage, or I'm drowning in my parenting, or I'm drowning in my finances. Help me with that stuff. And those are all excellent things to talk about. Those are all things we talk about at this church, and it's great to talk about biblical wisdom for life. But we in North America have come to have a distorted view of what, it, of what practical is. And we, our whole Christian life, all we hunger for is practical tips for all these little things we do in our lives. And we forget that the most practical thing we could do is study the person who gives us life. That's the most practical thing you should do. I cannot think of anything more impractical than to spend your whole life obsessed with the day-to-day grind of life and how can I do that better and to forget the one who holds your existence in the palm of his hand. We looked at this in the series on sovereignty in spring, but I just want to read you a passage of scripture, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, about who Jesus is. I mean, to talk about practical, you want to talk about practical Let's study, if there was a person out there who held your life in his hands, who got to decide when you would die, who got to write down in a book somewhere the date that you would die, wouldn't you think that one of the most practical things you could do would be to get to know that person? Because Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says this about Jesus, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, so we only exist because of him. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. In in existence, he keeps it going. At the moment he decides, ah, I don't want to keep it together, it falls apart, we cease to exist. Your life is dangling by a thread every moment, and that thread is Jesus' desire to keep you alive. So practical, yet we have millions and millions of Christians. They go to church every week. They just want to hear practical to them is, let let me hear something for my day-to-day life. But what could be more impractical than to ignore the one who holds your existence in his hands? The one before whom each of us here today, every single one of us here today, Will one day, it doesn't matter if you feel spiritual or not spiritual, it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus, every human being on earth is one day going to have an appointment with Jesus that they must keep. Every human being, every one of us here is one day going to stand one-on-one with Jesus. And he is going to look into you, not just look into your eyes. He is going to look into the deepest parts of your heart. He will look to your innermost desires. He will look to your motives. He will look to the innermost parts of your heart and your brain. And he is going to judge your entire life. You will not be judged by a committee, a committee of angels or some angels in God. You will be judged by Jesus. And I can't think of anything more practical when you think about that. The fact that he alone is going to decide whether your life is worthy of reward or judgment or how much reward for all of eternity. I can't think of anything more practical than to study the details of who he is. Don't you want to know who your judge is? Don't you want to know what his character is like? Don't you want to know his likes and dislikes? See, you don't want to be a stranger to Jesus on judgment day. When you stand before Jesus, you don't want it to be, oh, I never knew you. I mean, I heard about you lots in church, but I never actually met you. You're nothing like what I was picturing. No, you want to be going in and meeting the one who you love and you have known intimately for a long time already. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's Jesus. So Paul's whole goal in life is he gets up every morning, I just want to please Jesus. I want to know Jesus today. Why? Because for we must all appear, all of us, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul was motivated by a very practical concern. Every morning he gets up, what am I going to do today? I'm going to please Jesus. I want to get to know Jesus more. Why? Because one day I'm going to have to stand in front of him. That's, that's about the most practical thing you can do. And so we want to know this one. We want to get to know the one who holds our life in his hands. We want to get to know the one who is going to judge our lives. We want to know every detail of his life. And by the way, that's all that doctrine is. A lot of people are turned off by that word doctrine. Oh, we're going to talk about obscure things. No, no, no. We're going to talk about the details of Jesus' life and what he accomplished. That's all doctrine is. We're going to lovingly pour over. Someone put the name doctrine on it, and somewhere along the way, we got a bad taste of what that is, and, we've, and we just thought, you know what, I'm not really hungry to study doctrine. But all doctrine is, is we're going to lovingly pour over for, for I don't know how long. We're going to go for a while yet in fall, into winter probably. Um, but we're going to study lovingly the details, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because that's what doctrine is. So I just want to throw up there a few points for you. Why studying the details of Jesus' person and work, which is doctrine, why that's so important. Because I want you to remember this. Because a month from now, when we're going deep in the Word of God and we're looking at you know, the divinity of Jesus and He's God and what does the Bible say about that, I want you to remember back. Why are we doing this? Why are we studying these details? Why are we paying attention to so much to what the Scripture has to say about Jesus? And there's many other reasons we could list, but some, here are some of the reasons. So we can know him more, so we can love him more. Because remember, loving him and knowing him is life. That's everything. Okay? Because our existence is in his hands. We want to know the details because our existence is in his hands. And as I just said now, because he will judge us someday. And there's, there's a fourth reason that I want to spend some time on here today. There's a fourth reason why we're going to spend so much time in this series looking at the details, the doctrine, who is Jesus? What, what did his work accomplish? And the fourth reason is this, that is because of the deception that is coming on the earth about Jesus' identity. And I could have put in brackets if I would have had space, but there's deception coming about Jesus on the earth, but that makes it seem like it's in the future. It's already here. Because of the deception about Jesus that is coming on the earth, and that is already here. It actually matters what you and I believe about Jesus. It matters a lot. We're going to talk about the points of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And these are, not, these are not optional things we're going to be talking about in this series. These are not things like, there are minor points of doctrine. Like, you know, what do you believe about tithing? Or what do you believe about, you know, this or baptism or that? There are points of doctrine, and they matter. It all matters. But there are points of doctrine where you can have one Christian believes this, and one Christian believes that, and one Christian believes that. And it's fine that they all believe different things. It's okay and, uh, and nobody's going to hell because of it. But then there are other things that really matter. And when it comes to Jesus' identity, I can't impress this on you enough. When it comes to Jesus' identity, what you believe about Jesus really matters. It's not like optional, like, well, one Christian can believe this about his identity, and one Christian can believe that about his identity, and we're still brothers, it's just a little difference in theology. No, for example, I want to just show you one example. And that's what we're going to flesh out then now in this series. We're going to flesh out a handful of things about Jesus' identity that really, really matters. But I just want to show you one example here today. 
that what you believe about Jesus matters and who he is and the details of his identity. John 8, verse 24. Okay? Jesus said this to the Jews. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Think about that for just a moment. What you believe about who Jesus is matters. He said this to the Jews. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What you believe about who Jesus is really matters. Now the question is, I am he. I am who? Who is it that we have to believe Jesus is or we're going to die in our sins? It matters what you believe about Jesus. This is not, some Christians will believe this and some Christians will believe that. Jesus says, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. I am who? Well, and we're going to flesh this out in a whole message yet in a, in a couple of weeks. But this is just one example. I, if, if you look at the Greek there behind the three, I underline the three words there, I am he. And if you look at the Greek, there's actually only two words. The English translators added in the word he so that the, word, so that the sentence would sound grammatically correct. It would be grammatically correct, okay? But if you look at the Greek behind those three words, there's actually only two words, and the Greek words are ego eimi, okay? Now, you don't have to remember those. Uh, it's not important, but an ego, like an ego you put in your toaster and they're really good with syrup, okay? Ego eimi, all right? And all, it's just two words, and it means I am. That's all it says, Okay? So Jesus did not say to the Jews, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Now the English translators came along and said, well, that doesn't make any grammatical sense. It doesn't sound right. So they added in he, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. But it only says I am. And you say, well, why would Jesus say to the Jews, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins? Okay? And the answer to that is we have to talk about what is the name of God? What is the name of God? See, a lot of Christians, this is where we're, we're mistaken. Uh, God's name is not God, okay? The word God is not God's name. It's, it's, a, it's a title, like a category. It, it, it's, it's sort of like I have many titles that people can call me. My kids call me dad or daddy, okay? That's a, that's a category. I fulfill a role with them of dad, but dad isn't my name. On my birth certificate, it doesn't say dad Dirksen, okay? But my kids call me dad. Okay, uh, you could call me here in this church. People could call me pastor because I fulfill a role of pastor here at this church. You could say pastor, but my name isn't pastor. Okay, it's a role that I that I have, right? Or you could call me. You know, there's various government forms or whatever you have to fill, male or female, male. Okay, so man or human. These are all roles that I have, and you can call me those things. And that's I, I am that, but none of those are my name. My name is Chris. That's my name. Okay? Now, it's the same with God. God, the word God is, it's a role, it's a function, okay? He, he made the earth, he did all these things, so he's God, but God isn't God's name. So what is God's name? And these Jews who were listening to Jesus, what would they have understood God's name to be? Well, God has a proper name, and his name is Yahweh. Okay, that's his proper name. Now we actually, this name was so holy to the Jews. The Jews knew this, but the, the name Yahweh was so holy to the Jews that they, they refused to pronounce it. And, and the way they did Hebrew, they also didn't have the vowels in the word. So we're actually, the name was so holy that we're not actually sure if Yahweh is how you say it. Okay, the word, the, some people say it, it should be said Jehovah. Jehovah and Yahweh are the same things. It's just two different ways of pronouncing the same Hebrew word. We're not sure exactly how you say it, but the point is Yahweh is his name, okay? And it'll be something close to that, okay? 
Now you say, well, what does the name Yahweh mean? Well, the name Yahweh is a name that, that it, it kind of encapsulates the self-existence of God. It means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. Okay? And basically what it means is God is the only self-existent being in the whole universe. And that, what that means is his existence doesn't depend on anything or anyone else. Like your existence and my existence depends on God. If he hadn't brought us into existence, we wouldn't exist. And if he didn't keep us in existence, if he just pulled his hand back, we would cease to exist and we would die. So our existence is totally dependent on God. But God's existence is dependent on no one. He had no beginning. He just has always been. He's always existed. Always. And so his name encapsulates that. You can't change him. He is who he is. He always has been. I am who I am is his name. And we see this in Exodus 3, verses 13 to 14, when God introduces himself to Moses and the Israelites. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Now, they're going to ask, What is his name? Because if Moses just goes to the Israelites and says, God sent me, they're going to ask, Well, which God? Because the Egyptians had lots of gods, and their forefathers before Abraham had lots of gods. There was lots of gods everywhere. So if you just come and say to the Israelites, God sent me, they're going to say, well, which one? It would just be like if someone said, a man sent me. Well, which one? We need to know his name. So what is his name? What is God's name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, and so God now tells him his name. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. I am has sent you. Now, let's go back to John 24, 8, 24, keeping that Exodus 3, 13 to 14 there. And now let's look at what Jesus said to the Jews. What you believe about who Jesus is really matters. Jesus says to the Jews, he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Who is Jesus? He is Yahweh. He is the exact same one. Unless you believe that I am the very one, Yahweh, who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, Jesus says, that was me. The one who parted the Red Sea, that was me. The one that took your forefathers out of the land of Egypt, he's talking to these people right here. I am, that's me. And unless you believe I am, that I am that God, then you will die in your sins. What you believe about Jesus' identity really matters. Now this is hugely important because of the deception that is already growing in the church. Jesus is not just any God. Jesus is not just any God. And there is a huge movement already within the church. Okay? The deception is not coming just in the future. It's going to increase, but the deception is already here. And right now in North America, there is a massive movement within the church, and it's big. It's not here in Steinbach. Oh, it's, in the, it's in Toronto. It's in Winnipeg. They have some deception, but we don't have it here in Steinbach. It's right here in many of the churches in Steinbach. Some of the biggest churches, some of the biggest selling authors, some of the biggest, most famous Christian names right now are part of a movement that is variously called different things, but it's often called the Emergent Church Movement. Sells a lot of books, does a lot of conferences, crosses all the denominational lines. You'll find all kinds of different denominations of churches that are becoming, that are getting sucked into this movement. And they teach all kinds of things. They teach that there isn't a hell, and they teach blah, 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 different things. And one of the things that they are teaching more and more is we have to be more accepting of these other religions because these people are worshiping the same God often that we are. That's what they're teaching. So we worship, we Christians worship God who made the world, 
And then Muslims worship the God who made the world, but they just have an Arabic name for God, Allah. So actually, the Muslim and the Christian, we're worshiping the same God. They just have a different word for God. What you believe about Jesus matters. See, God's name isn't God. God's name isn't Allah. God has a particular specific name. His name is Yahweh. I am who I am. He's not just any God. He's a particular God with a particular history. And Jesus says, unless you believe I am that God, unless you believe there's only one God that calls himself I am who I am, and unless you believe I am that God, and he has a particular history, he parted the Red Sea, he spoke to Moses, he did the very particular things we see in this Bible. So if someone comes along and says, hey, well, they just worship the same God we do, or I worship the same God you do, you can just ask them, is your God's name Yahweh? Did your God part the Red Sea? Is your God the God of the Israelites that we read about in here? And if the answer to any of those questions is no, it's not the same God. And what you believe about Jesus really matters. He did not just say, I'm any God. Anybody who just worships the one who created the world is worshiping me. No, no, he said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Now the thing about deception is, The worst kinds of deception are the subtle ones. Isn't that true? I mean, if an atheist just comes up to you on the street and says, hey, all that stuff you believe about Jesus is bunk and there's no such thing as God, do you go, oh, I never thought of that and just become an atheist? (laughs) No. I mean, the most obvious deceptions are not the, or, or the worst deceptions are not the obvious ones. It's the subtle ones. It's the ones that are mostly true with a little innovation at the end. For example, what would you say if someone said to you, I believe that Jesus is the way of salvation and I believe that Jesus died on a cross for for our sins. And I believe that the way to get saved is just to repent of your sins and call on the name of, of Jehovah or Yahweh. And I mean, if someone told you those three things, those are all three very important true things. Is that not true? And if someone told you those three things, what would you think? Well, I know that some of you are a little reticent now because you're thinking, why is he bringing this up? There's clearly, there's a trap here. (laughs) But I know what most of us would think. If someone says, hey, I believe Jesus is the way of salvation. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I believe that the only way to get saved is to to repent and and call on, on the name of Jehovah. You would just say, oh, Christian brother or sister, we can have all kinds of other disagreements, but we agree on the main things and and you're a Christian. We're, We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? That's how we feel. I mean, Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus died on the cross for sins. Those are what make... I mean, when we tell people about Jesus, aren't those the things we tell them? But what would you say if I told you that that's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses believe? And you say, what? Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians? No. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you. You ask Jehovah's Witness, what do you believe? Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus died on the cross for sins. Oh, Jehovah's Witnesses must be Christians. No. Ask a Jehovah's Witness, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And they'll tell you. See, they don't believe in three distinct persons in one. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus and Yahweh are two separate gods. That Yahweh has always lived. That Yahweh has no beginning. At a point in time, Yahweh created Jesus before he created the rest of creation. So they call Jesus the firstborn of creation. And then through Jesus, he created the world. So Jesus is sort of like a semi-god or a demi-god, but he hasn't always existed. Jesus is the way of salvation. 
Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but they deny Jesus is Yahweh. What you believe about Jesus matters. Jesus said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Now that's something most of us Christians nowadays, because the deception is already rising, that doesn't register in our brains. The fact that someone could believe Jesus is the way of salvation, and the fact that someone could believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and that person could actually go to hell, just absolutely blows our mind, because we are already being conditioned into deception about who Jesus is. We're being conditioned to just accept this stuff, as long as it's close. You know what? The worst deceptions are the ones that are close. What you believe about who Jesus is really matters. Really, really matters. There's much more to this than just John 8.24, and we're going to bring up the whole Jesus is God thing in a, in a whole message. But I really want to impress this on your heart, this idea that there is deception right now and that the biggest danger you face right now the biggest danger you face as an individual that I face, that this church faces, that the Christian church faces, the biggest danger we face right now is deception. Deception about who Jesus is, deception about what Jesus wants for us. And I want to show you this. Uh, the biggest problem that Jesus talks about in the end times, the biggest, and again, when I use the word end times, don't think, oh, now he's talking about things that are, that's 10 years in the future, 20 years in the future, 50 years, 100 years, whatever. Don't think something that's coming in the future. You have to realize now it's going to increase in intensity, but now. But Jesus clearly warns that the most perilous uh, thing that we would face, the most perilous problem that the Christian church would grapple with in the last days would be deception by far. We usually think, what's the worst thing that's coming? And we spend our time being afraid of persecution and wars and physical suffering. We think that the physical upheavals are the worst part. And yes, there is, and that already is going on in the world too. And suffering is bad and all sorts of stuff. But Jesus clearly teaches that deception is the biggest problem we face and will face going forward. And I want to read this to you. Matthew 24. I'm just going to let Jesus' own words speak to us. I'm going to just read you one big, massive chunk of Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is an extremely important passage of Scripture. It is the only passage in Scripture, the only one where, where, there is a, where someone gives a comprehensive outline of the end times from beginning to end. It's the only one. It's Jesus' second longest sermon after the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. And so I'm just going to read you a big, big chunk of it. And let's see what Jesus says are the biggest issues that we need to be aware of and that we need to be, uh, you know, coming, be, be strong against. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Every time I read this chapter and I'm talking to people about it, I have to stop right there and say, Thank you, disciples, for asking that question. I mean, aren't you glad? It's the question we all want to know. And I just say, thank you, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, and the rest of you for asking Jesus that question. Amen. Guys, we're all asking it. Thank you for getting that one in writing, okay? Now, I want you to notice something else about, this, the, about Jesus' response, though, um, that we have to pay attention to as well. I want you to notice how Jesus answers their question. Because he answers it exactly opposite the way 90% of pastors and mature Christians today would, would, would answer it. And I'm not exaggerating with 90%. I bet you I'm pretty close to 90%. You go to 90% of the pastors out there today in Canada and the U.S., you go to 90% of the elders, the deacons, the mature Christians who are out there, and you ask them this exact question, which is in the Bible, what would be the sign of Jesus coming of the end of the age? And you know how they answer it? 
Don't ask that question. Don't think about it because you're going to get weird. (laughs) Isn't that true? Don't think about that. Think about practical things. Don't think about Jesus coming back. Think about things like your finances and, and your relationships. Think about really meaningful things, right? And those are meaningful things. I'm not putting them down. But this idea we have that it's weird to think about the one person who really matters, to want him to come back and to think about him coming back, that's weird. We should concern ourselves more with the things of this earth. And 90% of the people out there today, mature Christians, will tell you, don't think about that subject. It's weird. And Jesus does the exact opposite. He gives them a full good answer. And a lot of Christians today have this lie in their head that the end times is complicated and the end times is scary and all sorts of stuff and you can't understand it, so why even bother? And just, Jesus is the best teacher in the universe. He gives the answer and it is so simple, so straightforward and so easy to understand, it'll blow your mind. This, 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 and ta-da, then I come back. Read Matthew 24. I've challenged many of you. I mean, if you've been coming to Southern for any time, I'm sure you've read it already. Read Matthew 24 and tell me the end times is complicated. It's not complicated. And so he gives the, the, he gives the disciples now a comprehensive outline, and we're going to pay attention now. I want you to notice what Jesus says is the most important thing for us to be aware of. What is the most perilous thing that we're going to face in the last days and that we are already facing right now? Verse 4. And Jesus answered them. I love that. And Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray. First thing out of his mouth, see that no one leads you astray. To his closest followers, the first thing out of his mouth, Jesus, what is a sign of the end of the age and and that you're just about to get here? And the first thing he says to his closest followers, not to some distant followers, to his closest followers, the first thing out of his mouth is, see that no one leads you astray. The first thing he's talking about is deception. First thing, verse 5, for many, and I want you to pay attention, that word is going to pop up many times. Many is going to happen many times in this passage. And Jesus is not going to be wrong in anything he said. For many will come in my name. They're not going to, he's not talking about atheists or Hindus here. He's talking about many will come in my name. He's talking about Christians. They're going to have books in the Christian bookstore and they'll be in churches and they'll be pastors and they'll talk about his name. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So the very first thing, oh, Jesus, tell us, what's it going to be like in the days just before you come? How are we going to know when you're just about to come back? And Jesus says, oh, guys, it's really important. See that no one leads you astray, because many are going to come in my name and lead many astray. The first thing Jesus talks about is deception, and specifically deception about the identity of who Jesus is. And it's not just people claiming to be Jesus, and we're going to see that as this chapter goes on. It does include people claiming to be Jesus, but it also is just playing false prophets, speaking in Jesus' name, teaching false doctrine, and leading people away from a true walk with Jesus. But one of the things that I like to tell people here, because people often wonder, well, is this happening in the world right now? And you need to understand that we are living in times that are leading up to this. It's getting closer. Already right now, there are many people around the world right now claiming to be Jesus and millions of people are following them. And you can look any of this up, any of the major news networks, you can write this stuff down. I, I, I encourage you to go and look this up, but I pay attention to a lot of this stuff. But right now, for example, I'll just give you four quick examples. Uh, right now, in uh, Siberia, there's a guy who used to be a traffic cop and at some point along the way, he decided that he was uh, Jesus, reincarnated or something like that. 
And so he has now got, he, uh, they've set up a few uh, communes, a few villages, way out in the boonies in Siberia, and he has got tens of thousands of followers, tens. And many of them educated people, engineers, doctors, uh, all that sort of thing, educated people, following, flogging to him, and he's got followers now around the world as well. There's another guy in the Philippines right now. He has a huge, huge, huge church. He claims to have about six million followers. No one can corroborate that totally, but it's definitely into the millions because he has a lot of impact there in the Philippines, and uh, he calls himself the Son of God. Okay, there's another guy in Australia right now. He's living with a woman he says is Mary Magdalene. He says he's Jesus, and he just built a massive compound, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money in the shape of a cross, and uh, he's got followers all over the world sending him money because they think that he's Jesus. There's a guy right now in Latin America. In fact, I just talked to a, 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 Span a Spanish guy after the last service. He totally knew about this guy, but there's a guy in Latin America right now. He was written about in the National Post because he also has some followers in Ontario, uh, just this last summer, he was, he was written about in the, in the National Post. And he has got tens of thousands of followers, and he claims to be Jesus as well. And we could go on and on and on. There's many of these guys already. This is already happening. Now, of course, when I give you examples like that, you go, oh, ha, whew, we're not going to be fooled by any of those guys, right? Those are the dingbats. I want you to remember. <laughs> many, Jesus said, many will be led astray, Okay? And many, much of the deception that's coming is much more subtle than that. I'm just showing you that this stuff is already coming true now. It's already coming true now. It's happening. Anyway, so let's keep going now. Jesus talks verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So now he's going to leave the deception topic for a moment, but he'll come back to it. Let's keep going. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. Second time we hear that, that, that phrase. Many will fall away. Think about that. Um, many will fall away. What does it mean fall away? You can't fall away from something unless you were, you were on it. Is that not true? I mean, if an atheist doesn't believe in Jesus and then goes and follows a false doctrine or a false, false religion and never had Jesus in the first place, has he fallen away from anything? No. Many will fall away. Second time, we're going we're gonna to see that phrase a whole bunch of times yet in this passage. Many will fall away. Fall away means they were there at some point. They called themselves Christians. Everybody else thought of them as Christians. They thought of themselves as Christians and went to church and said Jesus' name. And at some point, many of them fall away. Jesus is not going to be wrong in anything he says. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And here we go again. We're back at deception. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Three times now. Many, many, many. We're talking deception, 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 and lead many astray. False Christs, false prophets. Okay, false prophets teaching false doctrines, leading people astray within the church. And we're going to come back to that one in just a little bit, but let's keep reading Matthew 24. Now in verse 12, he's going to leave uh, de deception again, but he's going to come back yet. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, by the way, uh, it's going to take endurance. Being saved is not just something you prayed in the, in, in the past, it's enduring in the future. And that is a very important point that many Christians have lost today. They think salvation is everything, something in the past. I did something in the past. Jesus focuses on something you're going to do in the future. You didn't just start following him in the past. You're going to endure to the end and keep following him. 
so that you don't fall away. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he's going to go on for a couple of verses and describe the abomination of desolation more. But just for time's sake, I'm just going to skip ahead a couple of verses. Verse 23. Then he's going to come back to deception. Now, look at this. Right at the end of his outline of the end times, from beginning to end, he's going to come back to deception again. One last time. Here it is. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it, False for false Christs and false prophets will arise, and now look at this, and perform great signs and wonders. They're going to do miracles. They're going to be Christians, they're going to write books, and they're going to do miracles. They're going to perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, I don't know if there is a more chilling sentence in the entire Bible than that sentence right there. To lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, the tide of deception is going to get so, so high that it is going to sweep away every single person in the church whose life is not actually founded on the rock. To deceive, if possible, even the elect. Only the ones who actually love Jesus and want to serve him are actually going to be standing at the end when he comes back. That's what Jesus says, and he's not going to be wrong. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, that, and after this, he goes on a few verses and talks about his glorious return in the rapture, and really awesome. But uh, my, what we've surveyed now, the whole part of his message, which is just taking from beginning to end of the end times. And I want to just do a quick survey now, and let's pay attention to what Jesus emphasizes. One time, one, this is the only place in the Bible where you have a comprehensive outline of the whole end times. And Jesus gives it straight from his mouth. One time in this outline, he warns about the abomination of desolation. One time, he warns about persecution. One time, he warns about wars and famines and all these sorts of things. One time, he's warning about all these physical upheavals. And these are the things we spend all of our time being afraid of. But three times... He comes back again and again and again. Three times he warns about deception. And in those three times, he four times says something to the effect of many will be led astray. Many will fall away. That is very significant. The most perilous danger the Christian church faces and that we face as individuals now and until Jesus comes back is the problem of deception. Who is Jesus? What does it really mean to follow him? And many are going to be led astray. Many will be swept out of the church and deceived. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting there and you're thinking, how horrible. Why would God allow this? Why would God allow this deception? And many Christians are going to be swept away. Why wouldn't God coddle the Christians and keep them all in the church? How, why would God allow deception to get to this level that many Christians will fall away? Well, I, I want, I'm going to answer that question. But before I do, you have to actually understand something because the question is actually a little bit off. The question is, huh, why would God allow this? The thing you have to understand is, is God's not actually just allowing this. He's encouraging this. You say, that's worse. 
Hey, yeah, I thought you were going to make me feel better there. You said, I mean, why is he allowing this? You say, he's not just allowing it. He's encouraging this. Why would God encourage this? Well, I'm, I'm going to show you that in 2 Thessalonians 2 in, in just a moment. But I want you to notice here, right, right here in this passage, God has to be. He has to want this to happen. Otherwise, it couldn't happen. How else are they doing great signs and wonders? How are they doing that unless he is wanting it to happen? I mean, it's the signs and wonders that give confirmation to the deceptive message. It's the signs and wonders that make the deception that much more deceptive. Is that not true? I mean, it's one thing for a guy to get up on TV and sell millions of books and use the name of Jesus and have scriptures in his, in his books and have his books in all the Christian bookstores. It's one thing for him to get up and preach a message and you go, ah, that's a bit off. And, but, but look, there's miracles happening in his ministry, so, so he must be all good, right? I mean, if, he, he is, he, if he's healing people, our thought is, ha, the Holy Spirit is on his ministry. Is that not how we think often? I mean, he's using the name of Jesus. There's miracles. God's behind his ministry. That's what we think. And Jesus says that this is exactly going to happen. It's already happening now. And, and he's warning us. So if someone is doing all these miracles and fire even comes down from heaven, are we just going to believe everything they say? And that fire coming down from heaven, by the way, that's not a random comment. In the book of Revelation, I just want to show you one passage there. I want to show you what, what Jesus, and this is again Jesus. Jesus gives a revelation to John of what's to come. Revelation 13, 11 to 14 says this. Jesus says that there's going to be a false, at least one false prophet in the end who has the power to call down fire from heaven. So we're not talking little fake miracles here. We're talking real miracles. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb. By the way, like a lamb. In the book of Revelation, uh, the, the word lamb is only used of Jesus throughout the whole book. It's, in fact, it's the most common title for Jesus in the book of Revelation is the lamb of God or just the lamb. And it's used dozens of times. Okay? This is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that the word lamb is used and it's not referring to Jesus. That is very significant because here is a false prophet who is looking and talking like Jesus. He's like a lamb. Okay, very significant. Again, this is all about the identity of Jesus, and it spoke like a dragon, which is he's got you know, evil words, but they don't look evil. They don't feel evil. And this is a false prophet, and this is what it does. It performs great signs. There it is again. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay? So we can expect that false teachers and false prophets are going to do many miracles. They're going to do great miracles in the future, and as a result, they're teaching. We just go, well, it, it has to be from God, right? That's what people feel, but it's not from God. And again, this is not something in the future. This is something right now. I'm thinking of a ministry right now. Okay, not in Canada or the U.S. I'm not going to name any, any names right now. At some point in the future, probably we'll have to. But I'm thinking of a ministry right now. It is certainly one of the biggest ministries in the world. And I'm not exaggerating. It is certainly one of the biggest ones, one of the most influential ones in the entire world in terms of books being sold, CDs, DVDs, all that sort of stuff. One of the most influential, millions no doubt about it, millions of Christians around the world are, finishing, are, are following this ministry. And there's no question that there are some real mi miracles in this ministry. 
I've seen clips, people going up on stage, they're sick, they have various problems, and they do actually get healed right on stage. And this man talks about Jesus all the time in his books and his messages. And so, and if you go to his website, you'll find testimony after testimony after testimony. Oh, I was reading this book, and while I was reading, I just got this good feeling over me, and I was healed of something. And I went to a conference, and I was listening to this conference, and while I was there, I was healed of this. And Christians say, look at the power of God is in this ministry. He's talking about Jesus, and there's miracles. But if you mine down into what this guy is teaching, you don't have to mine very far. He teaches a number of extremely distorted things about Jesus. He teaches that Jesus will never judge you, never. Well, right there, the Apostle Paul sure got it wrong, didn't he? Apostle Paul said, I'm living every day trying to please Jesus because one day I'm gonna have to, we're all going to have to stand for the judgment seat of Christ. This guy says, Jesus will not judge you ever. He says that God has no more wrath, zero. I've, I've read this for myself and heard it. He has zero wrath for sinful people anymore. It's all gone. No wrath. No wrath against sinful nations. No wrath against rebellious, immoral living. Brothers and sisters, that is a serious distortion of what it says in here. He says that Christians are automatically forgiven of all their sins even if they show no fruit of repentance in their lives. That is a serious distortion of the gospel message. But millions of Christians from all denominations on all continents in the world are right now following this guy because he says the name Jesus and there's miracles. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Many will come in my name performing great signs and wonders and will lead many astray. This is not just something in the future. It is something now. A few years ago, there was a, a revival uh, down in the southern states, uh, an evangelist, faith healer, started a series of meetings. Miracles started to happen at the meetings, and they were real miracles. I mean, some of them maybe were faked, but some of them were real. And uh, within a week or two, this thing went totally viral. Miracles were happening, and it went viral across the Christian community all over North America. And thousands of people, they started to have meetings every night, thousands of people, I'm, tens of thousands of people, flying from all over North America down to this place, packing into this place every night for revival meetings and it got this thing got so big and this is just i mean it's just a few years ago this was on cnn they had this guy on cnn and he was all over on the christian tv channels a lot of them canceled all their programming put this guy's revival meetings on there every night i mean it was just revival even up here in sleepy old steinbach we were hearing about this okay i started getting emails have you heard about what's going on down in in wherever and have you heard what god's doing what what do you think of this and i said well I mean, I'm, I'm even further behind the times than most of you. I don't even have a cell phone or a TV, so I don't, I don't know. I said, well, miracles. He's talking about God. I'm sure, cool. God's doing a, doing a work. And I just kept getting emails, and this thing is just huge. And so finally, I'm like, you know, I, what is going on down there? So I thought, I got to just watch something. So I went online, and I found a clip, and I was shocked within moments. This man was so rough with people. People would come up for healing, and uh, he would push and throw people. I mean, whew, push and throw people. He would sometimes, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he would punch people in the gut, okay? One man chipped his tooth getting healed. That's supposed to be funny. You're allowed to laugh. <laughs> he kicked a person on stage. Kicked a person on stage. There was a couple. They brought, they brought their son. They were bringing their son up on stage to get healed of something 
And they wanted him to close his eyes so this guy could do whatever to, and he was going to get healed. And this kid was terrified to close his eyes. He was cringing because he was afraid, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to get pushed or punched or kicked? Look in the Gospels, people. When they brought children to Jesus, did the children cringe in terror because they were afraid Jesus was going to punch or kick or push them? No! And yet, hundreds of thousands of Christians, hundreds of thousands, flocking, watching, going, hey, this is a move of God, signs and wonders. He's talking about Jesus and winning people to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. And the church has become so blind as to who Jesus is. There is so little relationship in the church today with the real Jesus that we are fooled that easily that a few miracles and signs and wonders, a guy can be nothing like Jesus and we will follow him for a few signs and wonders. And Jesus said, many, many will come in my name. They will perform great signs and wonders. Now, some of you might be thinking there, oh, Chris is against miracles now. No, I'm not against miracles. I mean, we've had a few miracles here. We want more miracles. And there's wonderful places all around the world where godly, humble people who really love Jesus who are actually serving him and serving his kingdom and the Holy Spirit works powerfully through them and there's miracles in their ministry and those are wonderful. The point is, we got to open our eyes up to what the scripture says. The miracles aren't the proof. If a leader's life does not, does not reflect the righteousness of Jesus and there's not the fruit of the Spirit in his life and he's not teaching what the biblical Jesus is, then it doesn't matter how many signs and wonders. It's a falsehood. It's a falsehood. This, by the way, is even more reason why the local church is so important. We've got people now with technology today, they are following people that are 10,000, you know, light years, I'm going to say no. <laughs> 10,000 kilometers, <laughs> light years, and we're not following anyone that far away. But, uh, but we're following, I mean, we've got people, we've got huge chunks of the church today following leaders that are in different countries. They can't see what the person's fruit is. You can't tell what the fruit of my life is just watching me preach. How do you know that a guy's got the fruit or that he's walking with the Lord or that he's exhibiting righteousness? You ground yourself in a local church because you look, what does his wife think of him? What do his kids think about him? What does the staff think about him? You might not know me personally, but you know many people in this church who do know me. And you ground yourself in a place where you can actually watch this guy, that he's not just some, some crazy whack who's in it for whatever, right? So that's my little thing. I should get off that one. Now let's talk about why would God allow this? Okay, back to why would God allow this? Why is God allowing this to happen? Okay, well, let's jump to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, it'll be good for my voice to go down to two services for a while because I'm just wrecking this thing. But uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's, let's read this here. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So you're going, whoa, this signs and wonders thing is all over the Bible. Yes, read your Bibles. Read them. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. Paul says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, false signs and wonders does not mean fake signs and wonders. They're real signs and wonders. They're false because they're not leading people to truth. They're leading people away from truth. 
The, the coming of the lawless ones by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God, now this is sobering, God sends them. I told you before, God's not just allowing this, he's encouraging this. God sends them a strong delusion. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. He sends them a strong delusion, not to trick the ones who love him. He's not tricking the ones who love him. What he's doing is he's sending a delusion, and all of those who, who actually wanted to believe something else, they wanted to live for themselves, he sends them a delusion so that those ones who didn't love the truth to begin with can follow something. He sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So God himself is encouraging this. Why? Let's look at this from God's perspective, okay? Okay? That all who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness might be swept away. What, how does God see things? When God looks at the earth right now, okay, there's somewhere around 2.2 billion Christians on the earth right now. Okay? But when God looks at the earth, you know, there aren't banners up in heaven right now. Woo! 2.2 billion people. No. Because God doesn't see 2.2 billion people who follow Jesus. He sees 2.2 billion people who have a label, Christianity, but he sees within that group, he sees a mixture. There's two groups. There's a smaller group of people and immature, imperfect. They're not wholehearted yet, but if you bore down to the to the deepest parts of their heart, at the deepest part of their hearts, they actually want to follow Jesus and not just love themselves. And they're imperfect. They're not, it's not like they're wholehearted yet. They're not even close to that. They're imperfect. But if you go right to the base of their hearts, you can see right to the base, at the, at the deepest part of their heart, their deepest heart cry is, and however weak it is, the deepest part of their heart cries out, I want to love Jesus and follow him, not myself. That's one group. It's a smaller group. And there's a bigger group. And these are people who, why are they Christians? Self-righteousness, convenience, habit, just want to go to heaven. But whatever the reason is, they have slapped a label of Christianity over top of a completely self-centered, selfish lifestyle. They don't actually care about Jesus. They don't, want to, they don't want to go to hell when they die, but they want to live for themselves here on earth. And they want to put that label of Christianity over it. It feels a little better, whatever the reason is, and they call themselves Christians. And Jesus is not coming back to earth for, for that kind of a church. His desire is not to have a whole bunch of people calling themselves Christians. His desire is to have a whole bunch of people that love him and are submitted to him, who have the fruit of the Spirit. So he is going to send a powerful storm of deception, so powerful. And here's the reason deception works, by the way. This is really important. Deception is not mostly a brain thing. It's a heart thing. Deception is not mostly a brain thing. It's a heart thing. Deception appeals to the sin inside of us. Deception always appeals to the sin inside of us. The deception appeals to the selfishness inside of us. It appeals to the pride inside of us. It appeals to the rebellion, want to be in control side of us. He, so he's going to send a storm of deception so powerful and it will appeal anyone who just has a Christian label on themselves but inwardly is just living for themselves and not for Jesus. That deception will completely appeal and will drag them away and it will sweep away every false Christian in the church so that the only ones left are the ones who really love Jesus, as I said before. That's why God wants to do this. 
The current state of affairs is unacceptable to Jesus. Well, I have to finish this message off now. We have eight more minutes in this auditorium. How many of you would like me to end with some good news? Not that many of you, actually. <laughs> I want to end this with good news. I got one passage of scripture because I know what some of you are thinking there right now. You're sitting there going, oh, shoot, fear is rising up. Am I going to be one of the ones swept away? Am I one of the fakes? I want to show you a passage of scripture, really important. Am I going to be one of the ones deceived? Am I going to be one of the ones tricked? John chapter 10 says this. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. That's a promise, by the way. For they know his voice. Jesus does not say, some of my sheep know my voice. Unfortunately, I'm going to lose a few. No. My sheep know my voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. That's also a promise. Promise number one, my sheep know my voice. Promise number two, my sheep know the difference between my voice and a stranger's. They won't follow a stranger. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, you know what really, really encourages me about this passage? Sheep are dumb. <laughs> I mean, that just encourages me. Doesn't that encourage you? Because some of you are sitting there going, oh, I'm not smart enough to stand in the coming deception. I don't have a PhD. I don't have this or that. And like I said before, it's not a brain thing. It's a heart thing. I know many very smart people who used to be Christians and have theological degrees and they're already gone away after deception. And they've left the faith. Being smart isn't what you need. It's having a heart that actually wants Jesus. So what is a true sheep? I'm going to put up two practical things. What is a true sheep? Okay, a true sheep, two things. There's relationship, there's doctrine. There's relationship, there's doctrine. Okay, I want to just keep hammering those home. If you could put that up there, Egan. There's relationship and there's doctrine. A true sheep, first of all, is someone, and you, it, you, it's not that you're wholehearted yet and you're perfect and you're on fire for God, but somewhere inside of you, you're determined that you are going to love Jesus and you're going to serve him. And every year, you're getting closer to him than you were the year before. Every month, you're closer to him than you were the, the month before. You're still a long way from perfect. You still have all kinds of problems. Yeah, me too. But in your imperfection and in your immaturity, you want to get closer to Jesus. There's a piece of you deep down that wants him. That's a sheep. And you won't be deceived. You have a relationship. Serve, obey, walk with Jesus. Now, I gave you, I've given you a few challenges the first two weeks. I would encourage you during this series, keep doing those. Those relational challenges. Listening to the promptings, tracking the promptings, and following Jesus, asking him to have a relationship. I don't want to spend much more time there. If I could just add one thing there. Just at some point this week, one time this week, Ask Jesus, am I serving your kingdom or am I serving myself? Just ask him that. Because a sheep is someone who, even in their imperfection, they want to advance his kingdom more than their own. Ask him, where would you like to put me to use? Is there anything you'd like me to give up? Write that. Sometime this week, ask him that. That true sheep is a person who's asking those kinds of questions. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to obey you. But a second part is, 
A true sheep is someone who loves God's words. Loves God's words. That's why I'm doing this series right now. It matters what you believe about Jesus. A true sheep wants to study the details. A true sheep wants to know more about Jesus. That's why we're doing this series. But second of all, it's not enough for me to just preach a series. Oh, now I won't be deceived because I heard a series. No, it's a hard thing. If you are here, and we've been hammering this now for a few weeks, okay? But if you're here today and you're still so stubborn, you're not spending regular time, you're not most days one or two chapters, 20 or 30 minutes, chewing on this word. I'm pleading with you, start. A true sheep loves God's words. And what happens is over weeks and months and years, it doesn't happen overnight, but weeks or months or years, we're day after day, a chapter or two at least in here, and you spend 30 minutes or 40 minutes or sometimes, you know, as you get more mature, an hour, whatever it is, but you spend 20 or 30 minutes chewing on these words. Over time, over weeks and months and years, a storehouse gets built up in your heart of God's word. And your spirit is quickened. And you get an ability that you can't get from just coming to a message. You get an ability that only comes from you being with Jesus. You get the ability to discern truth from falsehood. And it comes over time, lovingly poured over God's word. You know what I see with lots of Christians today? Lots of Christians today have substituted Christian books and Christian media for doing this. And what makes you think that the deception isn't going to come through the Christian book industry? Jesus said, they're going to come in my name. If your diet is Christian books and not the word of God, I'm not against reading, I love reading, but if your diet is Christian books instead of this, how are you going to stand when the deception comes? You think in the end times you'll go to the Christian bookstore across the street will be the deception bookstore and this is the Christian bookstore. I'll go into this and I'm safe. That's what a lot of people think today. Open your eyes, people. A lot of you think when you go into a Christian bookstore, ah, I'm safe. Christian radio's playing. Some crosses hanging on that swinging thing by the door. Everybody has a Bible on the front cover of the book. Oh, I'm safe. Anything I read here is good for my soul. Wrong. Jesus said, and many will come in my name. They will be in the Christian book industry. You can go to any Christian bookstore right now today and find many books that teach outright falsehoods about what the gospel message is all about, what the Christian life is all about, and who Jesus is. And if you're a sheep, we need to be in this thing. So I challenge you, make a commitment. One or two chapters a day, 20 or 30 minutes a day. For sure, start there. Don't go back to that. If you're past that already, don't go back there. But I'm just saying, if you haven't, start with that. One last thing. If you're already reading your Bible, and, uh, and, you're, and maybe you're on a Bible reading plan, and maybe you're a C personality, and you just can't stand the thought of leaving that Bible reading plan, then don't worry. Just do this in addition, okay? I realize some of your personalities, you can't leave a plan very easily. But, uh, but I would encourage you during this series on Jesus, we're studying Jesus every day from now until the end of this series, whenever that is. But it's all about Jesus, so it's good. Okay? I challenge you to read a chapter or two of the Gospels every day. And let's begin to look at who Jesus is, and then I'm going to preach on him on the weekends, and we're going to start to get to know him and love him. All right? Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. We're going to sing one last song. We'll just go like two minutes over, but it's our last, it's our last shebang in here, okay? So we'll go out with a bang, all right? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to know you more. When we know you more, we're going to love you more. I pray that every person in here is going to be a true sheep because your sheep know your voice. I pray that every person in here is going to be selfless, that we're going to love you more than we love ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, 
for how you're going to help us. In your name we pray. Amen.